This is a National Arts Center podcast. Find more great NAC podcasts on the performing arts at nacpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Center on iTunes and subscribe for free. Welcome to the We Love Canadian Music Podcast. I'm your host, NAC Presents Executive Producer, Heather Gibson. We Love Canadian Music brings you up-close and personal interviews with Canadian musicians on far-ranging topics from life on the road to the artists they find most inspiring. Join us every two weeks for a new interview. Welcome, Aaron Costello. Thank you very much. And uh, today, speaking to Aaron Costello from uh, the National Arts Centre. And Aaron, just to give some context, you are uh, originally from Nova Scotia? That's right, yes. And you grew up there? I grew up there. I grew up all over Nova Scotia, actually. We lived in, in Dartmouth and in New Glasgow and Bridgewater, and all my family's from Cape Breton. So Why we, were you all over the place? My dad worked for Maritime Tell and Tell, which is now uh, Alliant, but we got transferred a lot. MT&T. So, MT&T, MT yeah. yeah. And so we bounced around quite a lot. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm kind of used to moving around a lot as a result. And so how, with all that moving in Nova Scotia, did you get involved with music? Um, my dad is a really musical guy and he would play guitar and hold kind of sing-alongs in the house. So, you know, wherever we lived, there would always be a gang of, of what I considered old people, but were actually <laughs> my age now. Right. <laughs> uh, they would all show up at the house on the weekends and they just have big sing-alongs. And so that was really common. And uh, my mom comes from a family of 10 kids and I call them the Von Trapp family of Cape Breton because they would literally travel around to different festivals right. and sing their family choir thing. Uh, and so everyone could sing except my mom who jokes that they made her just mouth the words because she couldn't <laughs> sing. <laughs> so was this, a generation, was this family stuff, uh, was it like the sort of what people know as a Cape Breton Kaylee or a whole different... No, it was more um, like classic uh, well maybe my mum's stuff was it wasn't Kaylee stuff but it was like um, old time song kind of stuff right. so maybe a little bit more on the countryside of, of stuff like this land is your land kind that of stuff that kind of vibe right, right. Uh, but down by the bay where the watermelons grow yeah they yeah. they have a bunch of like they have like giggling songs that they do like right. the cuckoo song where they all sing like birds or something I don't know <laughs> it's they get all drunk and right. do these things anyway uh, do and, they still do this they still do this. In fact, you know, this is a while ago now, but my when my grandfather passed away, at his wake, they, there was a, a, a hotel in, in Sydney that everyone descended upon and stayed in because they couldn't stay in the family home. It was just too small for everyone to be there. And the service was being held in, in Sydney or in Glace Bay. I can't remember. But I walked into a hotel room and all my aunts and uncles were in there and they all had their 
their false teeth out on the bed and they were <laughs> trying each other's on and guessing <laughs> whose was whose. <laughs> so that is the family that I am from. Actually, uh-huh. It was a great sense of humor and uh, every summer it would be a big family reunion and lots of music and partying and stuff. Yeah. And so are your siblings musical? They are you Yeah. The, but none of them are professionals like you No, are. but I mean, my sister could easily be a professional. She plays guitar really well and she sings beautifully. She actually has quite a high voice, so we grew up harmonizing together and on my very first album, uh, an album called Trouble in the Truth, she sings all the background parts oh, on that right. album. Yeah. Uh, and my brother Patrick played uh, drums in a punk band and he plays trumpet and guitar and he is uh, uh, trained in geology and environmental science and he ended up becoming a camp counselor like at an environmental right. camp in California and now he's kind of worked his way up to be the director of all of these camps but he has a song called Rocks Rock and it's the <laughs> geology rock song <laughs> sedimentary rock <laughs> so, so basically you know, the same sense of humor yeah exactly right, exactly right. <laughs> and so though you took this a step further and you're actually educated in this, right. right this is not yeah. just a, something that you learned organically from the family that right this, yeah and yeah. so where did you go to school well, I mean, I grew up taking piano lessons from the time I was four, as did my sister, and um, my brother was in music lessons as well. So we all kind of had uh, instruction growing up, uh, classical mostly. Right. Um, the Royal and, Conservatory? Yeah, the, we did that whole method. And right. my sister actually revolted quite young. And so she was like 12 and was like, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to play pop songs. So right. she got the cool teacher, and I had the Hungarian lady, right. you know? <laughs> but I'm very grateful to her. Right. Uh, the Analia Bartanova. To... Yeah, she's wow. fantastic. Yeah. Uh, was but she very technical into how your hands were on the piano? Very much. And, yeah. Very much. And, and so I went through the whole Royal Conservatory system with her. And then I knew uh, that I really did not want to pursue a degree in classical music, but I wanted to continue studying music. And so uh, there's a university in Nova Scotia called St. Francis Xavier. And so I went there and, and studied jazz piano. Yeah. Right. That's where it started. It all started there. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, and then from there was that you actually have gone back to Saint Evex at some point and taught yeah, as well, right? I have. Yeah. That's bizarre. Is it to go back and teach alongside your teachers, where you know you're the same people are there. Many of the same people were there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. A, a few of them retired in the last year, I think. Uh, but yeah, I was teaching alongside my teachers. Yeah. Huh. It was it was cool and it, they seemed less intimidating, but also it was like it burst the bubble. Like I kind right. of wish that the bubble was still there in a way. You know? Right. Right. Which is yeah. a little bit like me in concerts. There's, sure. The magic yeah. is gone. Yeah. Um, so many of them. You see, of... you see uh, uh, the wizard behind the curtain, you right. know, like right. it's like <laughs> and sometimes he's ugly. Yeah, it's true. It's, <laughs> it's true. A, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, but then from, from St. Evex, is that when you went down to Texas? I took a year off and I moved to Winnipeg and I was dating uh, a guy at the time that we graduated together and he was a phenomenal, phenomenal saxophone player named David Westall. And, and he was like my first, you know, deep love, you know? And so we moved back to his hometown of Winnipeg and I spent a year playing rock and pop music and jazz in the corner gigs and, uh, and and Winnipeg was great. I, I worked for the Manitoba Theatre for Young People doing kind of oh, improv nice. yep. piano stuff. And Winnipeg was a fantastic city to be in. And then we both decided that we wanted to go further our education. So we moved to Texas together and he applied and got in to study uh, a master's in jazz, uh, saxophone. Mm. And I was studying a master's in music theory. And 
and he and I, you know, we ended up falling apart. Well, falling apart sounds bad. It just kind of fizzled out. And he pursued going on cruise ships for a while, and the relationship just kind of dissipated. Anyway, this is maybe getting too personal. <laughs> anyway. So you and Dave are no longer together. Yeah, yeah. In fact, unfortunately, Dave passed away oh. last year. He had a heart condition. And oddly enough, the night that I was playing opening for Rose Cousins in Winnipeg, he passed away that night, and I found out the next day. It was just shocking and you know the universe is weird and mm. it's strange that that you know my first love I would be in the city that he lived when he right. passed away it was right. a hard rest of the tour after finding that out right. obviously um but you know I I stayed in in Texas and I lived there for 4 years and I um, I loved it. Uh, and I moved from music theory to composition and I started taking classes in electronic music and performance art and multimedia and uh, counterpoint and arranging and orchestral kind of arrangements. And I just kind of soaked it up. And, and the community there was both at the same time being, a, it, it was really entrenched in the tradition of classical music, mm-hmm. uh, but it also was really progressive and uh, coming up against this kind of world of improvised music that was so uh, huge at the school. Um, I think at the time I was there, there was like 150 saxophone players, like and just what, what saxophone. Was it was the University of North Texas right. in Denton, Texas is where I went. And um, yeah, and how, it was How incredible. big of a community is that? I can't remember, but I think that the music school is like 1,500 students or something. Right. Like it, but I mean, it, this, the Denton is... Oh, not Is that big. a city? Oh, no, it's 70, like... 70,000, maybe. Right. So it's, it's, like a, it's almost like a Wolfville type scenario yeah, of, a, like of a, a university s- in a small town? Maybe a town. bit bigger. Maybe, you know, the, maybe the size of, I don't know, New Glasgow or something like that. But it's it's a suburb of of Dallas, Fort Worth area. Right. It's sort of like a in a triangle. There's Dallas, there's Fort Worth, and then Denton. It's right. the other part of the triangle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so you were down there for four years and then uh-huh. decided to come home? Well, my visa expired and right. I was going to marry a, a guy in Texas in order to stay in the country, but his name was also Aaron and I felt like that would be weird. <laughs> that's, that's not why. Yeah. Yeah. Not why, but it still would be weird. Yeah. 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 He was a performance artist actually and he still he still lives down in Denton and he's since married someone, but uh, his... Uh, his stage name, and everyone just called him this, was Oswaldo Sin Evil. <laughs> and everyone just called him Sin Evil. And like in life, like going to life. the grocery store, people yeah, were like, yeah, hey, hey Sin Evil. Totally. Wow. Uh, yeah, he was intense. He was he was an amazing guy. And, and so there was this kind of um, academic world, but then there was also this kind of bizarre art world, philosophical right. world. There was a large dance community. There was projects being done with uh, electronics and dancers. And, you know, it was really... Um, inspiring group of people to be around. Hmm. Uh, it was really awesome, actually. Yeah. And so when you came back to Nova Scotia, how did you find Was it a big shift for you? Yeah, well, after I left Texas, I moved to Toronto, and I lived in Toronto for a few years. Right. And, and I worked in the arts administration world. So I worked for a group called Soundstreams, and they're still going strong in Toronto, and they produce and present contemporary classical music. So they commission composers, right. uh, Canadian composers, and then they also present concerts in partnership with other 
uh, northern countries. So they'll have a Canadian composer paired with a, a Norwegian composer. Sure. And so I got to know a lot of the folks at the CBC in Toronto as a result of those presentations. And I worked doing production work and uh, writing grants and doing all the education and outreach. So I got to see kind of behind the scenes and learn how to write grants and learn how to be a composer and learn how people were making a living in Canada. Right. And it was inspiring. It was pretty great. Uh, and I got to hear some amazing music. But I knew that I didn't want to be an arts administrator my whole life. And so... So was, during that time, mm-hmm. did you stop playing? No, I was writing songs at that point. That's right. kind of where I started writing songs because I couldn't find anyone to play my orchestral arrangements. You know, right. I was working full time and I did not... I found Toronto a difficult place to make connections with a community. Um, so more difficult than Denton. Yeah, much more difficult. I mean, I think that I'd come from the glow of this art school to the reality of living in a huge city where... Well, you're not in the bubble of of being a university. Yeah, exactly. And... And so I wanted to still be creative, and so I just started writing songs. Right. Um, and and I would play them in Toronto at small places, graffitis and places like that. Um, and then I, I wanted to move back home, and my family didn't live there anymore. My parents were living in the States, and my brothers and sisters were away. And so I was kind of moving home without having anyone home to be with but I knew that that's where my home was and I hadn't been back in 10 years so I moved to the woods of Cape Breton in northern Cape Breton just a natural choice sure I went from Toronto (laughs) Toronto to the woods of Cape Breton (laughs) I had adopted this dog Mason and he was part Great Dane and part Shepherd and he was totally neurotic like I was spending all of my money in Toronto on doggy daycare like so that he wouldn't feel anxious as you do right and so I thought well it would be really good for the dog to move to the country (laughs) so I convinced myself (laughs) it was good for the dog right and what people don't know is that yeah. you, you now have also a, a new neurotic yes, little dog. Yes, I have a little yeah. chihuahua named Minnie. Yeah. yeah, and Minnie lives up to her name and that she's about the size of my cell phone. She is, the, yeah, she's under four pounds. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, she's I think here you, you should, ju- <laughs> should just take her anywhere you want it to go. Pretty much, pretty yeah. much. She's pretty quiet. She makes no noise. Most people don't even know she's with me. Like, I've had her in a little purse with her, like a Paris Hilton style purse and her yeah. head is peeking out. I have to say, when People I met Minnie, notice. it didn't jive with me from you that I know. <laughs> I know. Oh, no, right. I think the first time I met Minnie, she was wearing a dress or something. Yeah, it she's w- got a whole wardrobe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. It's, yeah. It just, it doesn't, the two things don't, co- you know, correlate it's true. for me. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, going from a Great Dane shepherd kind of rough and tumble dog yeah. to like this little dress wearing puffball. <laughs> it's sort of, it is weird. Yeah. So to go back when you said in Toronto and started writing songs, one of the things I think that you and I have spoken about before that, that as I've been doing this job here at the National Arts Centre that's focusing on songwriters yeah. and songwriting of all genres is I feel like at some point we did a disservice to uh, musicians and artists in that, that there seems to be this idea at at least in Canada, that legitimacy as an artist is that you write your own songs. Right. And I think that there was a point when it was uh, Dylan and Joni and right. those guys who came along and you had people like Carol King. Now, I mean, sure. Carol King's a really good example of somebody who could write, she's written half the American songbook That's right. of our yeah. generation or yeah. of our parents' generation and had some success singing. But yeah. she's sort of the last real of that generation who really made made it as a, as a songwriter. Sure. Um, Whereas now I hear these young young folks come all the time and they don't want to write, they don't want to sing other people's music. They right. think there's some sort of disdain right. to not being able to write your own music. Right. Do you think that that is a function of 
the culture that we've created or is it because that's the only way to make money if you're not touring? Yeah. Or where do you think it comes from? I mean, I think that that in the 60s, we really glorified the singer-songwriter and being able to do both was like um, revered. Right. And I don't know that we've ever kind of stepped away from being able to do both. Uh but I think it's nowadays, rare. it's yeah, rare the yeah. people who can do that. The, it's rare people who do it and do both of them well, yeah. you know. Uh, and for me, I mean, I always felt like I was a writer and a singer second. And that is starting to switch in my mind where I'm feeling like. Uh, You're finding your voice a bit. I'm finding my voice. I'm finding my confidence. Like as I've reached 40, uh, I'm feeling more confident uh, on stage and feeling more confident vocally. And now I'm really critical of my writing. And so I'm really trying to step it up in terms of my writing, especially for this next record that I'm starting to work on now. But there was a time where, you know, singing, you could have a whole career singing Cole Porter, you know, and that those songs are just so amazing. And I still love those songs and sing those songs. Uh, and for me growing up, studying jazz at St. FX, I was playing covers every night. Like, that's kind of what I did. So I think that an appreciation for really good song is kind of entrenched in me because of that schooling, you know? So what's the difference between singing covers and uh-huh. interpreting somebody's music? Like, when you say that, oh, right. there's a cover band. Right. And you and I spoke about this last weekend. Right. We were at a conference and there was a young woman who was singing, which for me, because I didn't know the genre well enough, which I, I think she was singing sort of 30s and 40s American standards. Right, right. But because I don't know the genre well enough, I don't know if she was actually singing standards or right. if she was singing a, almost a copycat, but sure. they're her own. Yeah, yeah, She'd yeah, written yeah. her own. I mean, so what do you think about that, that? That, for me, was a bit of an evolution. I guess you see that a bit in jazz, yeah. where people are singing stuff that uh-huh. sounds like it's old-timey or right. it sounds like... Well, yeah. you hear that in, in bluegrass too, right? Yep. Where yeah. it has a very distinct sound. You can't really... The good stuff, you can't tell whether it's... it's Ye- a, yeah. I think it's... It, I think people can detect authenticity and I don't think that matters if you are singing your own song or if you're singing someone else's song if you are truthful in the way that you interpret it people can tell right. immediately and and they don't care who wrote it that's inconsequential that moment is 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 like a spark that's shared you know like people feel like they're drawn into uh, the world of the person performing and so the greatest interpreters and greatest performers it feels like you get to know who they are Right. Based on their performance. Well, and I think yeah. that that's, that the authenticity is that's very true. In that sometimes we'll see somebody sing a song that we all know really well, yeah. and be quite critical of that. Right. And other times we see that, and it becomes the new version of that song that's right. in our minds. That's right. And because they've somehow found, um, you know, I've seen people or heard people, you, know, you get these on YouTube. You know, you get these young kids, for yeah. instance, sometimes will upload something. And these days, that's how often your people are being found yeah. or discovered, it's true. kind of yeah. thing. Um, because of their interpretation, yeah, and oftentimes uh, with well, with those young with young people, I find that it's because they have a distinctive voice, right? There's something that they've done. Whereas people who are more seasoned perhaps have actually interpreted something differently. And, yeah, um, I find it most interesting when people completely change. Um, there's been a couple on lately that I've seen. It's been punk music and loud right. music, and they've completely changed the pacing of the song. And yeah. So again, that you don't even actually know if you didn't know that song, you yeah. wouldn't know that the two absolutely. And that's really exciting to me. That uh-huh. People who, um, people are like you say, finding their voice. Right. Yeah. That people are yeah. starting to, to it, you know, look at other people's music. Yeah. Like, look at other people's writing again. Uh huh. I guess the only place that they didn't really lose that was country music. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah. country music now, I, I think, you know, they made such a big deal about Taylor Swift writing all of her own songs. Right. Because I think that's quite an anomaly in country music. Right. At least in that, at that level. Yeah. You know, it's sort of breakthrough sure. country. Um, and Nashville seems to still be a place where they, they sort of churn out yeah. songs. And yeah. have, so have you gotten into that Nashville scene? I've gone down and I've written once down there. And um, I don't know how I would fare if I was in a room where we were sitting across from each other and they said, we're going to write a hit and it's going to be about this. And, and trying to predetermine what is going to be a hit always seems to be based on what has already been a hit. Right. And so it does not feel like it's creating anything new and it's difficult to be authentic when you're trying to do that. Right. Uh, and you I end don't up know with all the songs sounding the same. Exactly. Which is kind of what we've got in popular music right. in a lot of popular music. There's some really great stuff out there and I'm, I, I love pop music. Um, but, it, there can be this formula that ends up making everything kind of sound the same. And there's some parts of Nashville that end up adhering to a formula in order to try and recreate a hit and I don't that's think already that happened. The general public realizes yeah. that in Nashville, it is actually like that show Nashville where they yeah. do sit in rooms. I've got a 10 o'clock appointment and I've got a 2 o'clock appointment to write yeah. a hit song today. You right. know? <laughs> yeah. We'll see how that goes. Here we go. <laughs> um, but I ended up writing um, with artists who are like directly with artists and they have a very clear voice that resonates with me. And so it was an amazing experience and unlike what most people experience when they go to Nashville, I think, to do right. co-writing. And so I feel really lucky that I got to do that and I'll so go again. So you're writing with people who the point of the writing was that they would sing the song. Yeah, they've got an album coming out and we're writing together for their new album. Right. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't normally happen. You kind of sit in a room and then you, you take that to someone else and pitch it or the person you're writing with has a publishing deal or you have a publishing deal and I mean that's another tricky thing in Nashville is if you don't have a publishing deal nobody really wants to write with you because how are you going to get this song pitched to anyone right, right. so there's a business involved in songwriting in, in Nashville um, and in other places too but uh, Nashville seems to be kind of a hub and it's growing mm-hmm. um, pretty quickly I think yeah yeah so uh, you said that you had you're starting to feel more confident with your voice and with, yeah. your, with your singing. Uh, do you think? I mean, it's I've always thought, and, and maybe there's some truth to this that that women's voices get stronger as they get um, into their 30s and, yeah. and their early 40s. And you know, obviously that's a broad. Not everyone is that way, but it right. seems to be that. So it's not surprising for me to hear that you yeah. say that. Do you think that that's the way forward for you? Is is would you be an artist who considers singing somebody else's music or oh yeah I am I, I have I have a bunch of shows singing Carol King's Tapestry album like I'm gonna oh, yeah, go those sing. are very popular yeah I'm gonna yeah. sing five or six shows and and to me it's not the same like you had mentioned what's the difference between a cover band yeah. and and doing interpretation um, for me that album it doesn't require me to go and and put on an outfit that looks like Carol King and and interpret them but that and sing would be them. fun though wouldn't it, it I don't know what it would be like just a big dress I guess and and make my hair bigger or something I don't know very curly you need curly hair curly hair I don't yeah. have curly hair no um but it doesn't require that. It just requires that I sing the songs and that people be able to tell that those are the songs yeah. uh, and because they're such powerful songs, I don't even really have to do them that well. People right. just sing along. I mean, I'll do them the best that I can. Uh, yeah. And I love them. And so it doesn't feel like a, a chore for me. Right. Like every time I sing them, it feels so like a lesson. so you're singing the tapestry or are you singing other things? Do you ever sing things like the Carol, like, because I know that you're known for singing some of Carol King's. Uh-huh. Do you ever sing her music that people don't realize is her? 
Yeah, I've written, I've sung a few of those songs, like Up on the Roof, I I cover that tune, and a lot of people don't know that that's her song. A lot of times, people don't know that they know all the songs on Tapestry. Like, they just think that they know a couple songs, and then you play them, and they're like, that was on that album. Oh, that was on that album. Basically, all of them are on that album. Unbelievable. Like, it's just kind of hit after hit after hit, and it's pretty impressive. Where was that in her discography? I think it was her second record. Right. Yeah. So not a bad second attempt. Not bad <laughs> not, at all. Not bad at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think James Taylor had a hit in the same year with You've Got a Friend. So he released right. that song and then she released it. And so can you imagine her royalty checks? Like, can you imagine? Like, and then she has Aretha Franklin cover Natural Woman. Like, and then everybody in the world is covering those songs. Like, it's just, it's incredible to... Not just for the the wealth that she would get from it, but from the the connection that she has yeah. made with so many millions of people. It's amazing. Yeah, the connection yeah. people have to her music. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Well, I had once had a, a friend who works in publishing say to me that one of their artists um, was worth uh, was was th- their catalog was three percent of their whole catalog, uh-huh. but was worth ninety percent of their royalty. Wow! Of the for the for the firm for the firm. Yeah, yeah, because it's it's that sort of popular. You know, yeah. as an artist who people don't even realize that they were singing his yeah. his songs and yeah. that that they were sort of and and it. I think it's to have those kinds of hits. I mean, you obviously have to have talent, and and that needs to be that's important. And and Carol King is a great example of of a wealth of knowledge and really good craft. You know, she'd been doing it for a while, like since she was 16 years old by the time she released that album. And, but at the same time, it's like every, all the things have to, the stars have to align, right? It has to hit at the exact moment. And this was the moment of women's liberation and the female singer songwriter. And it just kind of connected and clicked in a way that, um, you know, I don't know if it would have, 10 years later or 10 years earlier, you know, uh, there's, there's moments that happen that you can't predict, which is why just doing it authentically is the most important thing, you know, and this kind of Nashville style of we're going to write the next hit. I don't know that that works, you know? And, um, the, uh, you made a comment about the feminist movement and and things like that with, Mm. with Carol. Do you find, um, you know, when you're living in your jazz world and, and that sort of thing, is it? Mm-hmm. Were you very often one of the only women that was that was, or at Saint Effex? Yeah, always. always. I mean, at Saint Effex, uh, it was a program. I think there was, um, in my graduating year, uh, I think there was nine people that graduated. I mean, we started with thirty or forty or something like that, and slowly people drift off. Uh, but uh, the original group of nine, I was the only girl. And why do you think that is? It's interesting because there are more young women taking music lessons. So more young girls, statistically, in piano lessons or, you know, a a lot of young women. But more men than women pursue music as a career. And I I think it has something to do with who we see on on stage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so making a conscious effort to put more women on stages is really an important thing in order to ensure that more women go into music. But then there's also um, women are more uh, more often lead singers fronting a band and less often on the technical side of things and less often producing music, less mm-hmm. often writing music. And um, I think it's just based on, on history, you know? So I, I 
take it as a responsibility to the people that I am producing now as a producer, try and convince them to do it themselves as well. Right. Like that it's, it's emp- about empowerment too. Like, uh, I think, um, yeah, the more women we have making choices musically, the more women are going to start, um, appearing in positions of, of power mm-hmm. in the music industry. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, uh, it's an, it's very interesting to me the comment about how many young women are taking lessons, and uh, mm-hmm. it's almost like culturally we took lessons. Yeah, like we were as a, you know, good girls take yeah. piano lessons. Yeah, that's right. And um, some of us took voice lessons, yeah. and it was almost that sort this of nineteenth-century idea of very Victorian of us. Yes, let's yeah. let's take our lessons now in the salon, and yeah, uh, and every young girl did it. Right. Uh, yeah, and and you're right that there was there was. Uh, there's more in popular music now for girls, young girls to look up to. But, yeah. you know, in jazz music, if yeah. you weren't a singer, yeah. um, you know, there was no um, yeah. there was no real place where you didn't see a lot of players. Um, you still don't. You, yeah, you still don't. Yeah. And in fact, people think it's strange when uh-huh. they're like, oh, you know, look, there's a woman playing lead guitar. <laughs> it's like, yeah. And it's a surprise, right? Yeah. Or, you know, there's a... a that young, doesn't sing. That doesn't sing, yeah. You know, there's, there's some great female role models. Esperanza Spalding is amazing. And I mean, Diana Krall, fantastic piano player. But they all have to sing in order right. to kind of get some credit and notoriety. Right, you know? yeah. They're not session players. Right. They don't have a living yeah. just playing keys yeah. on somebody's band. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's interesting because that, that I know that young, uh, that Tori Cameron from Nova Scotia, oh, yeah. that I hear comments every time she's on stage as a bass player because mm-hmm. she doesn't sing yep. and she's totally into it. Yeah, like she's she always, is. She's like this, this female version of like that that bass dude, right? Yes, she like, is. Like, and yeah. it's very, it is a bit jarring when you yeah. realize you haven't really seen that. No. And so I wonder about young women who, if they get to see her and as her career develops, because yeah. she's only about 28, I think, 28 yeah. or 30. Music and, Nova Scotia should put her picture on the cover of everything. Right. You know, like that would be a step, really. I mean, and not to make Tori the kind of, um, you know, model woman for right. all, all future guitar players and right. bass players. But, the more we see that, right. the more young women see that, the more that they will make it no big deal. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think it's very, it's very true about on the desk. I mean, there's mm-hmm. here at the NAC, there's very few women on the desk. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so if you come to a show here, the likelihood of you seeing a woman working in a technical crew is very slim. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I hope that that's something that we can, we address as time goes on. And there's a whole bunch yeah. of factors as to why that is. But sure. a lot of it needs mentoring. Yes. You know, absolutely. like it's, you know, to all of a sudden decide that you're going to be a sound technician yeah. and work on the desk at the National Arts Center. Yeah. And that's your dream. I don't know, where would you get that dream from? Exactly. Right. Because there's nothing yeah. that is, it would have to come from in you somewhere. Yeah. And that you had this. And notion. that would be so rare if you don't see anything to model after, you yeah. know, to suddenly go, well, I want to be a sound tech. <laughs> <laughs> Or a producer. <laughs> right. You know, it's like yeah. we have these awards and yeah. whatever they are, anywhere in North America, yeah. of whatever level and yeah. any genre. And it is not, it is, I don't even know if there are women that are ever up for those producer awards. I think that, uh, well, at the Junos, I, I don't think there are any. And if there are female producers, they seem to be very specific to uh, electronic music or um, hip hop or rap music. And that's really great. But there is another kind of a producer too. I mean, the, the producers, um, 
who are in the studio with live recordings and creating arrangements and facilitating right. a, a live session, you know? Um, and so we don't see, I can't think of any women like that. I mean, right. I have a few friends who are doing it, mm. um, but are they doing anything beyond producing themselves? And I have, I have made it like my mission to produce as many things as I possibly can because I love it, but also because I think it's important for other women to see a woman doing that, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. I think we have to let you go and do okay. what you do best. And thank you. Go down and, and, uh, and have your show at the fourth stage. So thank you very much for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks, Heather. And uh, I'll see you in the fourth stage. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to We Love Canadian Music. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the podcast. We hope you'll give NAC Presents a like on Facebook and find us online by searching for NAC Presents. This has been a National Arts Centre podcast produced in Ottawa by NAC New Media. Send us your comments and questions. Email us at nacpodcasts at gmail.com. Visit the podcast section of the iTunes store where you can rate and comment on this podcast. We love to hear from you. Remember, you can find more great NAC podcasts at necpodcast.ca or search on National Arts Centre on iTunes and subscribe for free. Until next time, goodbye from Canada's National Arts Centre.